us here this morning. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Jamie. Uh, I am the guy who most weeks gets the privilege of opening up the scriptures with the church gathered, uh, and we will definitely do that this morning. Um, a couple days ago, uh, this past Friday, I had uh, intended to and did make a trip that I normally make uh, on Fridays and have for the last few months, ever since I found out that uh, my grandfather had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and given 60 to 90 days to live. And I got in the car on Friday and made the drive down to middle Georgia, walked into the, the nursing home at about 10:15. walked into my grandfather's room, uh, found him uh, seemingly lifeless, came to find out uh, that he had passed away an hour before I had gotten there, hadn't even had a chance to inform my dad or my aunt, who were the first in the, the chain of communication. And so you can imagine just the bizarre nature of showing up and, and, and that experience on top of the normal grief that you experience in a moment of loss. And so uh, I can't remember if it was Friday or Saturday, because this weekend's been a little bit of a blur, but, but I was asked, do you you want to preach this Sunday, or should we come up with a plan B? And, and my response was, um, more than ever, I want to preach, um, because uh, it's an opportunity to declare that Satan, sin, and death do not get the final word that God does. It's an opportunity to proclaim his goodness, glory, and grace. Um, so bear with me. Um, I am a man preaching in weakness, depending upon the Spirit's power this morning, but I trust that the Spirit... Uh, won't show up because he already has. I don't have to ask him to come because he's here. Um, and, and so this morning, we, we enter into, as you've heard already, uh, a season of Advent for those like me who either didn't grow up in the church or maybe grew up in a, a, a less liturgical setting. Let me frame this a little bit, explain a couple things about Advent. Since the fourth century, uh, the church has celebrated the season of Advent. It's a celebration that starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas and ends upon the arrival of Christmas itself. And so this morning marks the beginning of Advent 2018. That word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means coming or arrival. The season of Advent is, is meant to focus our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world, the celebration of his first coming and the hopeful anticipation of his second coming, which is why we'll gather on December 30th and close this series on that day. Normally, Advent would close on Christmas, Christmas Eve, but we're going to carry it a week and talk about, in light of the Christmas season, how we still yearn, we still long for the arrival of Jesus and his second coming. Advent is a season for the, the church to place itself in the time in between, which is exactly where we live, right? The time in between Jesus's birth and the trappings of a smelly stable and his glorious return to make everything sad untrue. It's a season to yearn, a season to lament the brokenness of the world and of ourselves, as we'll see in this morning's passage. It's a season to reflect on God's promises to be fulfilled in his second coming. My guess is that life is about to, if it hasn't already, get really busy for every one of us in this room. Right? There are presents to buy, there are dinner parties to host and attend, there's family to visit, there are traditions to uphold, there are movies to watch that you gotta get through between now and Christmas, right? There's songs to listen to, recipes to be made, and, and by God's grace, a fresh breakthrough of God's renewing and restoring power. 
That's what we're hoping for this Advent season, a, a fresh outpouring of God's spirit. That's the hope of Advent, that we, that we wouldn't go through the next few weeks indifferent to God's presence, caught up in, in the motions of dead, ritualistic, uh, religious practices that seek to keep God at bay, but rather that, that you and I would invite God to break in and break through awakening our hearts to the beauty and wonder of, of who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. To, to see beyond the, the tinsel, the trinkets and the toys, though those things are good in celebration of the greatest gift that we've all been given, namely God himself, who at great cost to himself has purchased our redemption. A God who's not removed from the story he's authoring, but became a character in that very story. Just think about that for a moment and let that blow your mind. A God so filled with love for his people that he would take on a killable body in order to sign the check for their ransom with his blood. It's amazing. A God who, as we sing every year, fills the, the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. My prayer is that he would shatter our complacency this Advent season, leading us to declare with the fullness of heart, glory to God in the highest. And so it's with that said that, that if you have a Bible, you can open up to this morning's passage. You heard it read just moments ago. Isaiah chapter six, that's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and use it this morning. You can take that with you if you don't own a Bible or the translation you brought with you is a little difficult to track with. Happy for you to have that. Let me pray for us, pray for me, and uh, we'll get going. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal yourself mighty this morning. I'm a weak man, like Isaiah, a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. I don't come in my own strength this morning. None of us do. We're desperate for you, Spirit of God, to move in power, to meet us in our weakness, to give us a glimpse of your goodness, glory, and grace in the face of Jesus Christ. God, would you, would you move mightily in these moments that we have together as we open up your word. God, I pray that you would break in and break through with restoring and renewing power, with a fresh outpouring of your spirit like we've never experienced this time of year. Spirit of God, move in the name of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. I pray these things, amen. For the remainder of this year, as Jason mentioned just a second ago, we're gonna spend our time together in the book of Isaiah. I don't know how familiar everyone in this room is with the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. He's one of the central figures associated with the Advent season. The book of Isaiah is filled with passages of scripture that are read this time of year in churches all across the world. At the time the prophet Isaiah came onto the scene, the, the nation of Israel had already been split into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom with Samaria as its capital and the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital city of Jerusalem. Isaiah uh, himself ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah roughly about 700 to 750 years before Jesus was born. So three quarters of a, of a millennia. Um, beginning his ministry at a time in which Judah was, was actually quite prosperous uh, but with that prosperity came a diminished view of God, as oftentimes happens. Many of God's people became apathetic. They became complacent. 
both in their attitude toward God and their faithfulness to God. Their worship became cultural in nature. Uh, They began to move toward a dead orthodoxy, a lifeless religion, a going through the motions, you might say. They were doing all the religious stuff, but their hearts were far from God. They, They came to believe that as long as they performed the appropriate rituals, they were safe in their sins. Chapters one through five of of the book of Isaiah describe the spiritual shortcomings of God's people. Chapter five, ending with these words, they're up on the screen. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. You have this prosperous cultural backdrop filled with spiritual complacency and dead ritualism. Sound familiar? (laughs) We live in the suburban American South, the perfect cultural cocktail of prosperity and lifeless going through the motions religion. In his book, Ancient Future Time, which is not a science fiction book, uh, it's actually a theological book, Robert Weber says this. He says, the danger we all face as we prepare for the future is the tendency to be indifferent to the presence of God in our plans. We participate in that humanistic spirit prevalent in our Western world, a spirit that often expresses itself in the way we plan for the future. When we think we can do things on our own, we act as though we have little or no need of God. Then we become self-confident. We begin to believe in ourselves and think ourselves to be invincible. When this happens, God becomes remote and even absent from our lives. We may go for days without concern to hear God speak to us through his word. And at the same time, the religious practices in which we engage, prayer before uh, meals and attendance at Sunday worship take on a ritualistic and somewhat meaningless character. We do them, he says, as one might run a machine in a mindless job and they mean little to us. They have no power and God does not reach us through them. They have become dead forms, lifeless and without meaning. To say we did not mean for this to happen would be an understatement. None of us wants God to become remote and removed from our lives. Nevertheless, God sometimes becomes distant. He goes on to say, perhaps we cannot trace back to the point at which we became spiritually indifferent, but we know the aliveness to God we once had has dissipated and is now lost in our personal experience. Perhaps we have not chosen to let God be in our lives. We live quite comfortably with God at a distance, At times like these, our personal experience is akin to Israel's before the birth of Christ. It is also similar to the condition of the world today, a world that is still largely indifferent to its creator, the one who alone can give it meaning and purpose. Our lives, as well as those of Israel, the church, and the world, pass through rhythms of cold indifference. And then, he says, God breaks into our lives and we become open and receptive. In the twists and turns of these alterations, we are called to a new awareness of life, to new commitments, to a new conversion of the soul. Whenever this happens, an advent has occurred, for advent is the time when God breaks in on us with new surprises and touches us with a renewing and restoring power. My prayer is that God does a little interfering in our lives this Advent season. It's a scary thing to pray when you really think about it, that he breaks through, which is exactly what we see in the life of Isaiah. Um, God breaks through. Isaiah has an experience with the reality of God and it leaves him forever changed. Look at verses one through four of chapter six of Isaiah. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. 
With two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. In the year that King Uzziah died, marking the end of this season of prosperity for Judah, I saw the Lord, Isaiah says. I saw the king of all creation robed in splendor and majesty. I saw a vision of God in his infinite holiness. Isaiah gets a glimpse of the throne of God in the heavenly places and surrounding this throne are angelic beings referred to as seraphim. A lot of people in the world, when they picture angels, this is what they picture. Little winged chubby babies fluttering around the throne of God. That's not what's happening in Isaiah chapter six. God is not surrounded by a bunch of fluttering, you know, winged chubby babies firing arrows of, of love out onto human existence. That's not what's going on. Seraphim in the original Hebrew language literally means fiery or burning ones. The picture that you have here is that of uh, majestic warriors flying in formation, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Nowhere in the scriptures will you find someone crying out, faithful, faithful, faithful is the Lord of hosts. Or loving, loving, loving is the Lord of hosts. Or merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord of hosts. Though all those things are true, right? The only attribute of God that's proclaimed in this sort of repetitive, superlative way is the holiness of God. You have these creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's a similar picture to what we find in Revelation chapter four, verse eight, where the apostle John gets a glimpse into heaven and sees the throne of God. And he says, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That since angelic beings were created, there's never been a day when they haven't cried out, holy, holy, holy. And there's never gonna come a day when they stop crying out, holy, holy, holy. They never sleep at night. They just continually cry out the praise of God's holiness. That's the picture here in Isaiah chapter six. J.I. Packer in his book, Concise Theology says, when scripture calls God or individual persons of the Godhead holy, the word signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. It covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection, and thus is an attribute of all of his attributes, pointing to the godness of God at every point. We can all leave this place understanding the holiness of God now, right? Not quite. We're talking about an overwhelming head-spinning experience here. You have these mighty beings untainted by sin. These are not fallen angels, right? These are sinless beings in the throne room of God, and yet in his presence, they cover their faces. So holy other that not even sinless angelic beings can look upon the Lord, nor do they feel worthy to even leave their feet exposed before his presence, you and I would be terrified in the presence of the angelic beings themselves. How much more would we shudder in the presence of him before whom angels cover their faces? John Calvin, in his commentary on Isaiah 6, says it this way. He says, the two wings with which they cover their face show plainly enough that even angels cannot endure God's brightness and that they are dazzled by it in the same manner as when we attempt to gaze upon the radiance of the sun. 
And if angels are overwhelmed by the majesty of God, how great will be the rashness of men if they venture to intrude so far? Isaiah's in a staring contest with a brightness more intense than the sun, the brightness of God's holiness and glory. And it's a staring contest that man cannot win. It leaves him absolutely undone. Verse five, and I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's a former artist duo known as the Civil Wars. Some of you may be familiar with them. They recorded a song entitled Barton Hollow, which begins with the words, I'm a dead man walking here. Other lyrics in that song, won't do me no good, washing in the river, can't no preacher man save my soul. If I die before I wake, I know the Lord my soul won't take. That's the kind of language Isaiah brings to the table here in verse five. I'm devastated, I'm undone. I've encountered God's holiness and glory. I'm a dead man walking here. I can't bear the weight of this moment. In the original Hebrew, that phrase, woe is me, that's actually Isaiah pronouncing a curse upon himself. There are numerous people throughout Christian history who have recorded these kind of woe is me experiences. Uh, English writer and preacher John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he reported feeling like a child falling to the bottom of a well. He says, covered in water at the bottom of this pit, I couldn't find a handhold or foothold to lift myself out. I felt that I would die in that condition. Danish Philosopher, theologian, and poet Soren Kierkegaard described himself as a, as a rower in a boat trying to save himself by rowing against the stream that runs toward God. He says, finally, I dropped the oars and experienced a feeling of spinning out of control toward the brink of the falls. Reminds me of a story that I read in middle school. I don't know why any middle schooler would be required to read such a story. Super creepy, The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. As the story goes, Poe puts himself as the main character in the story. He lives under the same roof as an old man that has a creepy eye with a film over it. And over the course of time, it, it drives him crazy looking into the eyes of this old man. And he eventually murders the man and buries the body underneath the wooden boards of, of the floor of the house. And eventually, officers show up because they've heard from neighbors reports of screaming before they get there, Poe's character is able to clean up the scene meticulously, feeling really good about himself that he's been able to hide the crime. He invites the officers in, very smug. He even goes so far as to uh, share a time of tea with them, putting his chair right over where the body is buried in arrogance. And, and as they begin to banter back and forth, Poe's character begins to hear the faint beating of a, a human heart. And over the course of the conversations with, the, with these officers, the, the beating gets louder and louder and louder. And he thinks to himself, surely the officers must hear this. But what he fails to, to understand is that it's not the actual beating of the heart of the man that he's murdered and buried underneath the floor of the home, but rather it's the weight of his his guilt, it's his guilt-riddenness that he's experiencing that's uh, creating this moment for him of anxiety, just this, this voice, this sound that he cannot escape so that as the story comes to a close, Poe's character cries out, pretend no more, I admit the deed, tear up the floorboards, here, here is the beating of his hideous heart. He has this 
this unbearable, overwhelming, I'm a dead man walking here moment, as does Isaiah through an encounter with the living God. The word lost in verse five can also be translated undone. It means to, to come apart at the seams. It's the exact opposite of having it all together, being put together at the seams, such that verse five is an indictment on culturally Christian pretenders and play actors. A declaration that if, if that's you, you've embraced God as a concept, but not as a reality. And I'll explain that distinction as we move forward in just a moment. Isaiah sees the Lord and he's undone. He's unraveled down to the best part of him. Isaiah was appointed to be a prophet, right? His tongue consecrated to God. That which he could have regarded as most sacred would have been his mouth. And yet, what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. A declaration of the totality of his sinful state before God. Unable to, to distinguish himself from his sinful community that surrounds him because when you come face to face with the holiness of God, comparing yourself to other people just seems silly. He says, I'm unclean, just like everyone else around me. You see this kind of growing humility and awareness of sin in the life of the apostle Paul who declared himself to be the least of the apostles to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 who declared himself to be the very least of all the saints to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 3, 8, who declared himself to be the foremost of sinners to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 15. Puritan John Flavel once said, when the corn is nearly ripe, it bows the head and stoops lower than it was when green. When the people of God are ripe for heaven, they grow more humble and self-denying. It's humble to consider just how deep the rabbit hole of sinfulness actually runs in our lives. Isaiah has this moment in which he encounters the holiness and glory of the living God. And in light of this encounter, he acknowledges and confesses his true spiritual poverty. And in light of that acknowledgement and confession, he experiences something of the grace of God. Standing in the presence of God always leads to a poverty of spirit, which opens the door for God's grace in our lives. John Oswald, I guess I'm gonna quote every John that's ever existed in church history this morning. John Oswald says in his, Oswald says in his commentary, there is a strong likelihood that until we come to an understanding of ourselves, we will treat the grace of God, his unfailing, undeserved love as a throwaway item. Of course God loves me. That's his job. No, he says, it is not his job. It is an unimaginable, unexpected, and indeed unnecessary wonder of the universe. God has found a way, amazing as it is to think of, to satisfy both his holiness and his love. Isaiah experiences such grace in verses six and seven, where we're told that one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah says, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That Isaiah realizes in this woe is me moment that there's no way he can bridge the gap between God's holiness and his sinfulness, that sinners cannot stand in the presence of the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God without burning up in an instant unless God divinely intervenes somehow. And he does. In the midst of Isaiah's desperation, as the angel approaches him with a burning coal, which likely terrified him before it comforted him because more often than not, fire in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's judgment. You can just picture Isaiah expecting to be incinerated in an instant and then grace. His guilt removed, 
sin atoned for. Here's something pretty incredible to think about. When Jesus died, the same thing happened as what we see here in Isaiah chapter 6. The temple was shaken down to the the foundations of the thresholds, the the curtain of the temple torn in two as the burning coal of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus in our place, our atoning sacrifice for sin, that this passage finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's greatest work of divine intervention, that we can never claw our way to God through good works, but the gap that we could never bridge to God, God himself has bridged that gap in the person of Jesus Christ who lived the life that we could never live, a sinless life. He died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die as our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. He rose three days later from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, and death, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning as triumphant king of the universe. That the apostle John cites this morning's passage, Isaiah chapter 6, to make sense of why the Jews were rejecting Jesus despite all of his many miracles. In John chapter 12, verse 41, we're told, Isaiah said these things, meaning What we're reading this morning, Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus's glory, and spoke of him, of Jesus. That in making that statement, John reveals that the king seated on the throne in Isaiah chapter six is none other than Jesus Christ. He's the one on the throne to whom these angelic beings cry out, holy, holy, holy. Andrew Davis in his commentary on this morning's passage says, the mystery of the incarnation, which is God taking on flesh. Jesus of Nazareth is the God of heaven and earth, the creator of fiery archangels and of lowly caterpillars alike. The one who crafted and shaped the mountains and who spread the stars throughout space. This is the one whose blood provides the only sure purifying remedy for sin. Isaiah cried out, woe is me, I am ruined by my sin. The live coal taken from the altar represents Christ, his purifying ministry. Isaiah saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ and wrote about him. The glory of Jesus, he says, is infinite and will radiate throughout the new heaven and new earth forever. And Isaiah wrote about him so that we could see that glory by faith and turn and be healed. So a question this morning, have you been healed by Jesus? Has your sin been atoned for by his precious and valuable blood? Because if not, you can cry out to him even now from your very seat, declaring him to be the only true savior and king. And if you're a Christian in this room, just like the last few weeks of the Acts series, I invite you to marvel at the head-spinning grace of God that you could do nothing, nothing, to make yourself clean before God. And God being full of love and grace and mercy, just like what we see in Isaiah chapter six, divinely intervened and presented the person and atoning work of Jesus Christ to you. And through faith, like a coal to the lips, Jesus made you clean, blotting out your iniquities with his atoning blood. When we grasp that, I don't see how there's any way that our hearts in their fullness Don't cry out, glory to God in the highest. Isaiah does what anyone who's truly experienced the head-spinning mercy and grace of God does. In verse eight, we're told, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. 
Completely clueless, by the way, to the task at hand. If you have verse eight on a coffee mug, it's very likely that that there's a misunderstanding of the context because if you go on to read verses nine through 13, what we're told is that Isaiah is called to preach for years to a people other than a small remnant who will reject his message. What a terrible ministry, right? Who wants to be a part of that ministry? But for Isaiah, it just doesn't matter because when you've had a true collision with the living God, his overwhelming glory and grace, you'll go wherever he sends you. E.J. Young in his commentary on this passage says, only when a man has been convicted of sin and has understood that the redeemer has borne the guilt of his sin, is he willing and ready joyfully to serve God, to go wherever God may call him. I don't know if you're aware of this. I think you are. We live in a world that's dark, a world that's broken, a world that's altogether unholy. We wake up day in, day out to the reality of a fallen, broken world, and it can be incredibly discouraging, which is why Advent is a season of yearning. It's a season to lament the brokenness of the world and and of ourselves too, not just to say, hey, the problem's out there, but the problem's also in here. It's a season to reflect on God's promises to be fulfilled in the return of Jesus when he sets all things right, making everything sad untrue, the most glorious happily ever after that the world has ever known in this true fairy tale, that there will come a day when everything on earth will be holy to the Lord, that according to Revelation 19, Jesus will come back and he will eradicate sin and evil forever. And that includes your final cleansing from sin and my final cleansing from sin as God completes the good work that he began in us. Philippians chapter one, verse six, cleansed from sin forever by our atoning king. Isn't that good news? so that all of us who are followers of Jesus will get to join in with the angels in the throne room of heaven, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We'll get to bask in his holiness, his perfection forever. And in doing so, your joy, my joy, will be made perfectly complete. I can't wait. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Advent is a season of yearning, it's a season of waiting, but it's also a season to to remember that we have a ministry, like Isaiah. We're we're in this uh, time in between, Jesus' hidden birth in a humble manger and his return to set all things right, that we're a sent people like Isaiah, whose sins have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been commissioned to point people to him, the true savior and king. What a great privilege, church. But there's a danger this is what I wanna close with this morning. There's a danger for us that's not altogether different from the danger that Israel faced. A prosperous cultural backdrop filled with spiritual complacency and dead ritualism. As I said before, we live in the suburban American South, the perfect cultural cocktail of prosperity and lifeless religion. So that if the waters of your heart and my heart are to be stirred, we need to see God like Isaiah. And we need to see ourselves like Isaiah. And we need to see the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ like Isaiah. Coming back to a distinction I made just a moment ago, and Tim Keller was incredibly helpful to me in in understanding this. It's the difference between God as a concept and God as a reality. If you go back to verse five, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That Hebrew word translated glory means weight. 
His, his glory, God's glory is his weightiness. If you fill a bucket with, with water and you drop a weight in, what happens? The weight sinks to the bottom, right? And the water is displaced. It's what happens every time both of our chubby cheek kids get into a bathtub. We have to fill it all, only so much because we don't want the thing to overflow. One of, the, one of the great dangers in our context is that we would see ourselves as the weight and God as the water. That's what it means to treat God as a concept rather than a reality, such that God has, has no room to displace you. He's the one who must be displaced. Keller says it this way. He says, God as a concept is lighter than you. When you bring God as a concept into your life, you shape it. It fits in around your existing patterns. It doesn't move you around. It doesn't quake you if you believe in God and it just hasn't changed you very much, it's just a concept. A God concept can't really change your beliefs around. He just fits in with your existing beliefs. You shape the God concept. The God concept doesn't shape you. You have more glory than the God concept. The God concept is lighter. And the God concept not only moves into our existing patterns of our beliefs, but the existing patterns of our agendas and our plans and goals. Plenty of people try to get religious, he says. They go to church, they start to pray, they read their Bible. Why? Because they need help in getting to their goals. He goes on to say, God as a concept is lighter than you, but God as a reality is heavier than you. When the real God comes into your life, when you actually get into the presence of the real God, things give way in your life to his glory things that you've always believed and that you believe very, 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 very deeply are changed by his word because God has more glory than your beliefs. He can change things that you think. And also, instead of God being fit into your agenda, God becomes your new agenda. He radically changes your priorities. When God, the reality, comes into your life, all that stuff starts to change, Keller says. God was a concept in Isaiah's life until he became a reality, rearranging everything for his glory and Isaiah's good and joy. And so I close this morning asking you, has that happened to you? Is God, is, is God contradicting you? Is God changing you? Has he completely derailed and reorchestrated your agenda at points along the way? The way in which you even look at life altogether this Advent season, you'll hear me say this again at the end of this service as a part of the benediction. May, may God rescue all of us in this room, myself included, from complacency and apathy. May God break in on us with new surprises and touch us with his renewing and restoring power. Like Isaiah, may we have a holy, overwhelming vision of God. May we have a deep awareness of our own sinfulness before him. May we profoundly experience something of God's grace in the face of Jesus Christ and may we be willing to spend and be spent for his glory.